Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. You may be seated. As I said two weeks ago, as part of our introduction to the book of Ephesians, I want to look at Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus, because what Luke tells us here is is very helpful in, in understanding the background and beliefs of the people who became Christians and made up the churches of Ephesus. And so if you will, turn in your Bibles once again to Acts chapter 19, Acts 19, Two weeks ago, we looked at verses 1 through 20. This morning, we'll pick it up in verse 21 and finish the chapter, Lord willing. And so Acts chapter 19, verses 21 to 41, and because of the length of the passage, we're going to read it as we go through it. You'll remember from last time, in looking at the first 20 verses of chapter 19, we saw how utterly committed Paul was to the preaching of the Word of God in Ephesus. In the mornings, he worked at his tent-making trade, and in the afternoon, he, uh, he literally he taught God's Word, and he literally worked night and day for the Lord. I mean, Paul was committed to the cause of Christ with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God blessed Paul's efforts, and the gospel had a great impact on Ephesus and the surrounding areas. And it can all be summed up in the words of verse 20 of chapter 19, if you'll notice We read there, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. Whenever and wherever the word of God prevails, results occur. In Ephesus, a great many people were saved, their lives transformed by the power of the gospel. A church was established, and from there the gospel spread so that the whole province of Asia, the area around uh, modern-day Turkey, was evangelized. Other churches were established as well, churches in Colossae and Hierapolis and some of the seven churches named in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And so great things were accomplished through the preaching and teaching of God's Word. But all of this was not without opposition. Because you see, loved ones, whenever the gospel is boldly and faithfully proclaimed and God's people are saved, or people are saved, their lives are going to be transformed and the result is their lifestyles are going to change. And if there's been no change in your lifestyle, then one should question their salvation. But when people are saved, their lives are transformed, resulting in a changed lifestyle. And if that happens to enough people in in a community, it begins to have an impact upon that society in which they live. And when a society is greatly impacted because of Jesus Christ, you can count on it. There's going to be satanic opposition because Satan wants to keep his hold on the lives of men and women in the society in which they live. The prevailing of God's word has two results. 
And progress for the gospel and persecution from Satan. Always. Satan always opposes the gospel. And this is the way we ought to expect things to happen today. This last half of chapter 19 is about the opposition that arose in Ephesus because of the power of the gospel through the ministry of Paul and the impact that it was having upon that pagan society. But before we get to that, Luke briefly tells us about Paul's plans for the future. So let's look at verses 21 and 22 and Paul's future plans. We read in the first part of verse 21, now after these events. Now, after these events. Well, after what events? Well, after reasoning in the synagogue. After teaching daily in the lecture hall that he had rented. After teaching from house to house in the evenings. After seeing God do extraordinary, unusual miracles. After seeing believers coming forward and confessing their hidden sins. After seeing many people who were involved in the occult and black magic get saved and burn their magic books. After two and a half years of ministry and many people being saved and churches planted. After these events. After these events, we read in the rest of verse 21, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem. Paul's ministry in Ephesus was drawing to a close. And the Holy Spirit put it upon his heart to go to Jerusalem, but not until he had first traveled through Macedonia and Achaia. Now that raises the question, why in the world would Paul, if you look at a map, you'll see that that's a very roundabout way. Now, why in the world would he take such a circuitous route to Jerusalem? Because leaving Ephesus to go to Macedonia was to go in the exact opposite direction of Jerusalem. And besides that, he had just ministered in those places before he came to Ephesus. So why would Paul take such a long, roundabout way to Jerusalem? Well, because the church in Jerusalem was experiencing financial difficulties. Many believers in the Jerusalem church were poor and in need of financial assistance. And Luke doesn't tell us here, but in reading some of Paul's letters written during this time, we learn that he was going to travel through Macedonia and Achaia, visiting the churches there to collect the love offering as a gift for the church in Jerusalem. We read about it in 1 Corinthians 16. We read it this morning. We also read about it in 2 Corinthians, in chapter, 9, in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, and then in verse 7, Paul wrote, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul also wrote to the Roman believers about this trip. He said in Romans chapter 15, verses 25 through 27, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. And so Paul was going to take the long way around to Jerusalem so that he could pick up the love offering that had been collected for the saints there. And in this, we see the love and concern that the Apostle Paul had for all the church. 
By collecting this offering from the Gentile churches to meet the financial needs of their Jewish brothers in in the church of Jerusalem, Paul was, first of all, emphasizing in a very practical way the unity of the church. He wanted to demonstrate to the Gentile and Jewish believers that they all belong to the body of Christ and that when one part of the body suffers, believers in another place must help. He wanted them to see that the body of Christ was much larger than just the local church they were part of. He wanted them to have a vision and a love for the entire body of Christ. And secondly, Paul wanted to teach the believers that their love for others must be demonstrated in very practical ways. I mean, it's not enough just to feel sorry for others. And he wanted them to know that their sympathy must be translated into action. Why? Because true love gives. It's willing to sacrifice for the sake of others. And sacrifice, quite honestly, is a word that it appears not, is, is not in the vocabulary of many people today. Paul wanted to teach that love gets right down to the simplicity of giving your money for the sake of somebody else. I mean, that's the most practical lesson of love. It's giving. It is self-sacrifice. And the Bible speaks about the importance of this kind of care. We read about it in James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And that's rhetorical, because the obvious answer is it's not any good at all. It's useless. It's worthless. And then John in 1 John 3, 16 through 18, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, or we could say in in feelings and emotions but in deed and in truth. And I really don't need to comment on any of that, do I? I mean, we understand what it means. It's very clear what the Bible says. And if we know that that the church or someone in the church has a need and we have the ability to meet that need and we do, do not, the Lord says, how does God's love abide in you? You know, do not love in word or talk. Don't talk about it because that, that's, that's worthless and a sign that it's not real. Just do it. Just do it. And so in collecting this love offering for the church in Jerusalem, Paul was teaching them, first of all, to have a vision and a love for the entire body of Christ, and secondly, that their love is to be demonstrated in very practical ways by giving sacrificially to meet the needs of others. And those two lessons are as relevant for us today as they were then. And so Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem, but but that wasn't his ultimate goal. I mean, look at the last part of verse 21. Paul said, after I have been there, speaking of Jerusalem, I must also see Rome. Well, why would Paul want to go to Rome? Well, because he wanted to visit the church that had been established there and to preach Christ in in the imperial capital, which at that time was the center of the world's power and influence. I mean, Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. 
Paul wanted to preach and teach the great truths of the gospel of grace to believers who had never received apostolic instruction to edify them, to strengthen them, so that they might encourage one another. But even Rome was not Paul's ultimate destination. Paul also wrote in Romans chapter 15, verses 22 to 24, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Paul saw Rome as merely a stop on the way to another mission field, Spain, the westernmost frontier of the Roman Empire. And Paul prayed in Romans that by some means he might find a way in the will of God to go to Rome and then from there on to Spain. And and, and from this point on, Rome became Paul's goal. And of course, we know that God answered Paul's prayer, didn't he? Because at the end of the book of Acts, Paul actually arrives in Rome, but it was certainly not in the way in which he had anticipated. Paul arrived there, but he arrived there as a Roman prisoner. But he got there, and it was an exciting journey, to say the least. We read now in verse 22. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So Paul sent Timothy, and we all know who Timothy is, Paul's son in the faith, his faithful disciple and co-laborer in the gospel, and, and also this man by the name of Erastus. And we don't know who this man was. And though the name Erastus appears two other times in Scripture, uh, we cannot identify uh, this man with, with either one of those with any kind of certainty. But obviously he must have been a faithful and, and trusted companion of Paul. And so Paul sends these two ahead to pave the way for his own return and to collect the love offering for the church in Jerusalem. But he himself stayed in Ephesus, it says, For a while. In fact, he stayed for another six months. And he tells us why in 1 Corinthians 16. We read it earlier this morning, but let me read it once again. 1 Corinthians 16, 8 through 10. He said, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. When, Tim, when Paul wrote that, he was writing to Corinth from Ephesus. And he said, I'm going to send Timothy and, and Erastus, and you receive Timothy, but I'm, I'm going to stay here for a while. Paul's work in Ephesus wasn't quite finished. He realized uh, that God had more work for him to do, and he, he told the Corinthians he had a wide door and a great opportunity for effective ministry. But he also said he had many adversaries. And now in verses 23 to 41, we read the last recorded event of Paul's stay in Ephesus. It's a very vivid picture of what happens when people exalt Christ instead of idols. Paul's gospel-centered, Christ-exalting, spirit-empowered ministry impacted the local economy, and that in turn caused an uproar which resulted in a riot. And in verses 23 to 27, we see the cause of the riot. Notice verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. 
About the time Paul sent Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia, we're, we're told that there arose no little disturbance. In other words, there was a great disturbance, a huge disturbance concerning the way. And the way, of course, refers to those who followed the way of Christ. It's an early designation for Christians and Christianity. And that phrase, the way, really is a good description of the Christian life, isn't it? Because being a Christian is not a badge that we wear. It's not a banner we carry. Neither is it simply an activity we participate in once or twice a week. No, being a Christian is what we are. It's a way of life. It is the way of life for all of those who are truly truly following the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself is the way, the truth, and the life. And so there was a great disturbance concerning Christianity in Ephesus. And it's kind of exciting to see this. Because that's what the gospel should always do. The church should always create no little disturbance as a result of faithfully proclaiming the gospel. And Luke now begins, us, begins to give us the details in verse 24. Notice. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. In other words, uh, they made a lot of money. And we learn the disturbance begins with a man named Demetrius. He was a silversmith. Of course, we know the real cause of the riot was Satan's antagonism to the impact God's word was having on the city of Ephesus in the province of Asia. That's the real behind-the-scenes reason for the riot. But the human instrument Satan used was this silversmith named Demetrius. You see, everywhere in the ancient world there were temples and shrines where people worshipped idols of false gods, and Ephesus was no exception. There appears to have been at least 33 shrines to Artemis throughout the Roman Empire, making it perhaps the most popular cult of all. And Ephesus was the center of the cult of Artemis. And Artemis was the supposed goddess of sexual fertility. Artemis was represented by uh, not, not a beautiful statue of a goddess, but rather by a black chunk of rock, which they said fell from heaven. So it's believed that it was a meteorite. And this black rock had been fashioned into a grotesque image of a woman that was covered with multiple breasts from the waist up. And this grotesque image was enthroned in the temple of Artemis, which was a massive structure, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And literally thousands of pilgrims would come to Ephesus from all over the empire to worship Artemis, especially every spring when they had the annual festival to Artemis, which involved drunkenness and and every kind of debauchery, wild orgies involving the ritual prostitutes from the temple. And naturally, businesses grew up around the temple to serve the needs of these pilgrims. And so whatever affected the worship of Artemis also affected the businesses that were connected with the cult. And one of the most prominent businesses was the silversmith trade. 
Because just like today, when the visitors came, they liked to purchase souvenirs. So you always know when someone has taken their children to Disneyland because they come home with Donald Duck hats and Mickey Mouse ears and goofy t-shirts. They always buy souvenirs, and it was no different in that day. When they visited Ephesus and the Temple of Artemis, they wanted to pick up a souvenir. And these uh, silver shrines were either miniature models of the temple or statuettes of the goddess, which were then used for private worship in their homes. And the manufacture of these shrines was big business. And in a city like Ephesus, it was an extremely big business. In fact, it was the basis of the city's economy. And the verse says it brought no little business to the craftsmen. As I mentioned earlier, in other words, it brought them a lot of business and huge profits. But business was not so good. And in fact, business was steadily dropping off. Sales were dwindling, and their affluent lifestyle was being threatened. And so we read in verse 25, if you'll notice, that Demetrius gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. This Demetrius was evidently a prominent businessman, and he may have been the head of the silversmiths guild. And guilds were were similar to our trade unions, only in the ancient world they were much more important than our trade unions. And so perhaps Demetrius was, was president of the local silversmiths guild. And he called a meeting and invited those, the silversmiths and those who were involved in similar trades. And he began by saying in verse 25, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. In other words, you know our wealth comes from the manufacture of the silver shrines of Artemis. And this is how we make our living, a a very lucrative one at that, but there's a problem. And he said in verse 26, And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, no doubt said with Uh, a tone of derision and hatred. This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Well, this is interesting. Because here out of the very mouth of an enemy of the church and an enemy of God, we hear how the gospel impacted not only the city of Ephesus, but almost all of Asia as well. You know, it's one thing for Christians to proclaim the power of God, but it's even better when pagans proclaim the power of God, right? Here, God has the pagans themselves state the case that Christianity is powerful and it's turning people from idols. I mean, Paul and the others who were preaching the gospel told told the people that there were no such things as gods made with hands. And a great many people had become Christians, turning from their idols to serve the true and the living God. And consequently, they no longer went to the temple of Artemis. They they no longer bought little silver shrines and, and other trinkets, which meant that the silversmith's business was suffering. The gospel had impacted their business in a negative way and had hit them in the most sensitive part of their anatomy, their wallets. For two and a half years, Demetrius and the others had no quarrel whatsoever with Paul's preaching in Ephesus. But they did now. They did now because his preaching was affecting their bottom line. 
It was costing them money. And that's what happens when the gospel is preached in power. It has an impact on society, and that in turn will have an impact upon the economy. I mean, for example, during the Welsh revival in 1901, so many people were saved that many of the pubs and taverns went broke because their former patrons were now Christians serving the Lord and no longer spending time in the pubs getting drunk. Same thing happened in Ephesus. When people got saved, the idol business dried up or began to dry up. So much so that it was noticeable. It was affecting the economy. You see, our Christianity should also impact the local economy. As one commentator said, let me suggest that if our Christianity is not affecting the economy of our world, we do not have much Christianity. I know we do not like to hear that. Because we tend to think that our economy is the product of our Christianity. We think of the Western world as being Christian and therefore capitalistic. And there is some truth to that. But at the same time, when Christians live as Christians, it will affect how they use their money. And there will be an impact on the economy, negatively for some. And inevitably, there will be hostility toward Christians as there was in Ephesus. The gospel was having an impact upon the people, the city, and the economy of Ephesus, and the inevitable opposition arose. Now, I think it's really important to note that Paul did not arouse the opposition of the silversmiths because he staged anti-idol rallies or boycotted their businesses. He didn't march on the temple or or picket or, or demonstrate. No, Paul and the Christians in Ephesus did what Jesus has done, or had done, and what he had sent the apostles into the world to do. They preached the gospel, and God saved people, after which Paul discipled them. He taught them how to live for Christ. And then they went out and actually lived for Christ. And the power of their changed lives absolutely made a difference. If we want to have an impact on the society we live in, If we want to have an impact on the world today, we do so by proclaiming the gospel and by living the gospel, you know, living out our lives for Jesus Christ. And if we want to change our community for Jesus Christ, we don't do it by protests or boycotts or marches, etc. We live holy lives and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people as God gives us opportunity, and if and when they come to faith in Christ and then begin to live for Christ, it will have a definite effect upon the community because transformed lives lead to a transformed community, and the end result is the community will not be able to handle it. Paul preached the gospel, and as a result, people were saved, which in turn resulted in fewer and fewer customers for the silversmiths, shrines, and idols. You see, Demetrius and the silversmiths' concern was money. That was the number one motivating factor. They were more concerned about their income than they were about Artemis or her temple. It was the love of money that led Demetrius to oppose the gospel and incite the riot in Ephesus. And of course, the Bible says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And how true the word of God is. For the love of money, family members have turned against one another. For the love of money, 
lives and marriages have been absolutely ruined. For the love of money, nations and empires have been destroyed. For the love of money, men will do any evil thing. I mean, years and years ago, when I was in law enforcement, knew some criminals in the area who'd gladly burn somebody's house down with them in it for a hundred dollars. For the love of money, men will do any evil thing. But as Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his soul? Doesn't profit him anything, does it? Many a man And believe me, friends, many a man is in hell today because he loved money rather than loving God. And of course, we as Christians are not exempt from the love of money, are we? In fact, the love of money is the darling sin of many believers. There are many professed believers who uh, apparently from their actions love money more than they love God. They would never admit that. But if they were to be quite honest with themselves, a quick look at the register in their checkbook would show show them what their love and affections were truly for. One well-known commentator said, how we use our money demonstrates the reality of our love for God. In some ways, it proves our love more conclusively than depth of knowledge, length of prayers, or prominence of service. And again, the Bible warns us about the love of money. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So, loved ones, we need to be careful about loving money. Many professed Christians do. I mean, what, what else could explain the way that they use their money? Demetrius' strategy for stirring up a riot was to appeal to his fellow workmen's love of money. And then he wanted to encourage them to hide their greed behind the mask of religious loyalty and civic pride. He said in the rest of verse, he said in verse 25, if you'll remember, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. So first, he appeals to their love of money. You know, our business is in danger, both, you know, their profitability and their reputations were in danger. He's saying, we, we can't tolerate Christianity because our receipts are off. But then notice what he says now in verse 27. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So secondly, first he appealed to their love of money. Secondly, he appeals to their religious loyalty. He says the temple of the great Goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And then to these claims, Demetrius added a third argument. You know, this Paul's preaching threatens to rob our world-renowned goddess of her magnificence, in other words, of her greatness and rightful glory. And this assertion was meant to stir up the emotions of patriotic Ephesians. And in making it, Demetrius is essentially saying Look, guys, to attack Artemis is to attack Ephesus. He really knew how to get people stirred up. 
Use their love of money, their religious loyalty, and their civic pride. I mean, their entire way of life was being affected according to Demetrius. So the gospel hit these guys economically, religiously, and civically. And that's just exactly what the gospel ought to do. It ought to affect the system economically. It ought to throw some kinds of businesses right out just by the power that it generates in changing lives. It ought to affect things religiously. It ought to just destroy false religion. And it also ought ought to impact things civically, politically, and socially. Demetrius had no interest whatsoever in trying to learn what Paul was teaching because he was driven ultimately by greed, which is idolatry, not by his love for the goddess. He was driven by dollars, not doctrine. He deliberately ignited the highly explosive issues mentioned above, and he got the results that he was looking for. In verses 28 to 34, we see the commotion all of this caused. The threat of financial disaster, the challenge to their fervently held religious beliefs, and and the threat to their civic pride were just too much for the crowd to bear. And in verse 28, we read, When the silversmiths and the other craftsmen heard this, They were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So they just started crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And literally, it's Great Artemis of the Ephesians. So basically what they're doing is is crying out to their God to do something. Great Artemis of the Ephesians. And all of this commotion was about to turn into a full-blown riot. Because the men Demetrius was speaking to obviously left the meeting hall crying out, Great is Artemis. And we read now in verse 29, So the city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. So Demetrius accomplished his goal and and he whipped the crowd into a frenzy inflamed by his incendiary speech, the people poured out into the streets, calling on the name of their goddess. You see, blind passion had replaced reason, and it spread throughout the entire city, so that the city was filled with the confusion. It was a mob mentality. And this is typical of riots, isn't it? If you remember the riots in Minneapolis when George Floyd died while being arrested, Minneapolis became a battleground. A mob mentality took over and people lost all sense of reason and with blind anger and rage, they just lost control and began breaking windows and looting and burning cars and burning down buildings and businesses and so forth. And this happened in the cities across America. A mob mentality. The people in Ephesus were caught up in the same kind of mob mentality. They had totally lost control. And they went throughout the streets, mindlessly shouting at the top of their lungs, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. There's an interesting verse in Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 38, which says, They are mad. They are mad over idols. Well, this was true of the Ephesians. They were in an absolute frenzy. Benjamin Franklin said that a mob is a monster with many heads but no brains. And that was certainly true of this mob. They didn't know what to do. 
And there was chaos, there was disorder and confusion, and in their confusion they rushed together into the theater, which held in excess of 25,000 people. If that's not bad enough, they, they drug with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's traveling companions. So now you have a theater full of out-of-control, howling mad people who probably intended to kill Paul's friends, and Paul himself, if they could get their hands on it. And aware of this, we read now in verse 30, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. You know, John Wesley, who was very experienced with angry mobs, (laughs) he advised his early Methodist associates with this statement, always look a mob in the face. Well, Paul was a man of courage, and he would have faced the mob himself. I mean, he said in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He also said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Look, Paul was willing to die for Christ because he looked beyond this life to the glory that was to come. And so Paul's first reaction was, I'm going in. Paul wanted to go into the theater. He wanted to face the mob himself, no doubt, to defend his friends and traveling companions, but also, and probably even primarily, to take advantage of a great opportunity to preach the gospel to such a large crowd. But as the verse tells us, the disciples would not let him. You say, well, why did they do that? Well, because his life was in danger. You say, well, couldn't God take care of that? Well, of course he could. But there's an interesting principle here. Sometimes reason or or wisdom is better than foolish faith. You know, it's like the guy who said, God's going to protect me anyway, so I'm going to lay down in the fast lane of the freeway. Now, there's a certain sense in which we've got to use our minds and the sanctified common sense God has given to us. That's why he gave them to us. It is faith, it is faith to be in danger and believe God will deliver you. But it is presumption to put yourself in danger and then expect God to deliver you. I mean, if the danger comes around you, believe God will take care of you. But, but there's no sense in being stupid about it, right? In other words, don't tempt God. That's what Satan did, Remember? Remember what he tried to get Jesus to do? He said, jump off the temple and the angels will catch you and and lift you up. And that was certainly true. But Jesus said that would be to tempt God. And you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Why? Well, that would be presuming upon God. Again, it is one thing to be in danger and believe God will get you out. But it is entirely something else. To presume on God and to unnecessarily place yourself in danger. And so the disciples, the Christians with Paul said, nope, nope, (laughs) there's no sense in going over there, Paul. Because not only would Paul endanger his own life, but the lives of his friends. So out of fear for Paul's safety, they wouldn't allow him to go in and needlessly endanger his life. And no doubt Paul must have sensed God's leading in this, or knowing Paul, he would have went. 
But not only was Paul restrained by some Christians, notice verse 31. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. You see, Paul had friends in high places. The Asiarchs were members of the aristocracy. I mean, these were men who promoted the cult of the emperor and the interests of Rome. These were, these were high-powered guys. Every year, an Asiarch was elected for the entire province, and additional Asiarchs were elected for each city that had a temple honoring the emperor. And then after serving their, their year and stepping down from this position, uh, these men kept the title Asiarch for life. And so in Paul's day, uh, there could have been a great number of Asiarchs at Ephesus. Again, they were wealthy, powerful, prominent men who had a lot of clout. And whether these men were believers or not, we do not know. But obviously, Paul had had an impact upon their lives so that they cared enough for him to plead with him not to go into the theater. Whether they were believers or not, we don't know, but God in his providence saw to it that Paul was protected and the Lord prepared the Asiarchs to step in at just the right moment to warn Paul. Meanwhile, as Paul was being persuaded to stay out of the theater, the situation inside was one of total chaos. Look at verse 32. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. So the majority of the people, they didn't even know what was going on or why. They were just there. They had no idea. They just got caught up in the emotion of the whole thing. Seemed like a good thing to do at the moment. So they're just there and and participating. They don't have no idea why. And this just shows how easily aroused and how easily led the general public is by misleading and twisted information. I mean, we saw that Uh, We have seen that so much over the last two and a half years. And then we read in verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. (laughs) I can just see this. I mean, in the midst of all of this chaos and these howling mad people, we're told a man by the name of Alexander was put forward by the Jews. You wonder if it was willingly. And we aren't told why, why the Jews put him forward. Probably to disassociate themselves from Paul, who was a Jew, and from Christians in general. And the Jews wanted the mob to know they didn't endorse Paul's message or ministry. They weren't the cause of the silversmith's decline in business. I mean, they wanted to make sure the Jews weren't made the scapegoats for the problems taking place in Ephesus. So apparently Alexander was put forward climbed onto the stage, motioned the crowd that he wanted to speak, but if he thought the crowd was going to listen to him, he was absolutely wrong because the whole thing backfired. Look at verse 34. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So before he can ever say a word, before he can ever begin to deliver his speech, his voice is drowned out by a two-hour chant. You know, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, can you imagine that? They did that for two hours. And trying to reason with a hysterical mob that swept itself 
up into a frenzy like this mob is, is it's impossible. Besides, to this crowd, there was no difference between Christians and Jews because both worshipped an invisible God and both rejected idolatry. So this mob could have cared less whether they were, whether they were Jews or Christians. But what a sad indictment this is of the Jews in Ephesus. Even though they didn't believe in Christ, the Jews did not believe in idolatry. I mean, they were opposed to idolatry as much as anyone could possibly be. But they were afraid. They were fearful. And so under pressure, they wanted it to be known They had no part in this whatsoever. We don't know this guy. We don't have anything to do with this. Well, this same fearful mentality can be seen in believers. This is the same fearful mentality that prompted Peter to deny that he was one of the disciples and that he even knew Jesus and to do so with cursing. This is the same fearful mentality that caused Peter to play the hypocrite in Galatia. Before certain Jews from Jerusalem came, Peter was hanging out with the Gentiles, eating with them, fellowshipping with them, worshiping with them. But when certain Jews came from James, oh, he he backed off and separated himself because he was afraid of the circumcision party. And he began to play the hypocrite. And because of what Peter did, a number of the other Jews acted hypocritically along with him, even, even to the point that Barnabas participated. And Paul had to rebuke Peter to his face. But it's just this fearful mentality. And it happens to believers today. You know, as long as there's no pressure, as long as there's no opposition, they're okay. But when pressure comes from the world, they won't stand for the truth. They won't do what is right. They remain silent. They they give in out of fear. And it's the pressure of the crowd. It's the pressure of unsaved family, friends, and co-workers. It's it's the pressure of numbers. and, And it's hard for anyone. But it's especially hard when you're younger and still in school. I mean the peer pressure. The pressure of being accepted. The pressure to fit in. The the pressure to be a part of of the in crowd or or a certain certain group of people or, or to be cool. I don't even know if they say that anymore. I mean the pressure is so great. And who doesn't want to be liked and and well thought of? I mean, who doesn't want to fit in? But the point is, we cannot forsake the truth. We cannot remain silent and deny our faith because we're afraid to stand alone if necessary for what is right and what is good and what is true. It takes a lot of courage and some sound thinking to stand firm when the majority of people we know are going the other way. 
But loved ones, the good news is God gives us the grace and the strength to stand for the truth and for what is right if we'll ask Him. And listen, it is the people who stand against the crowd for what is right. It is the people who speak out for the truth that make a difference. As one man said, the world is never changed by the majority. The world is changed by a minority who hear a different drummer. As Christians, we hear a different drummer, or I should say, we listen to a different spirit. We listen to the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, not, not the Spirit of the, word, of the world. And we walk in the Spirit, following Christ. And we don't go alone or in our own power. God is with us, and we, we go in the power of the Spirit. That same resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead is at work within us. We need to be like Paul. We need to be be like Paul who didn't care what men thought of him or did to him. He stood firm. He stood for what was right. He didn't remain silent or cower. He wasn't, wasn't a coward. He was a Christian man. He played the man. That's why we read this morning in 1 Corinthians, play the man. You know, be a man, be the man that God created you to be and stand. We need godly, masculine men in the church who will stand up for the truth. Who unashamedly, unabashedly will stand and declare the gospel come hell or high water. And not back down or be silenced. So we need to be like Paul who didn't care what men thought of him or did to him. He stood firm. He stood for what was right. Even when the crowd was going the other direction. Because he loved Christ more than life itself. And he knew that his life was in God's hands. So he had nothing to fear. I mean, Paul knew the words of Psalm 118 verse 6, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? You say, well, he could kill me. Well, yeah, but for Christians, that's a win-win situation. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. So like Paul, we need to stand for the truth and what is right regardless of the cost. We need bold, godly, masculine men who will stand up for the truth. I mean, the world for too long has been, trying, has, has been working to uh, make men more effeminate, and that's come into the church. We need to be the godly, masculine, loving men that God has created us to be and lead our families like men and stand up for the truth as men. As Paul said to the Corinthians, we need to play the man, be the man. And we can do so because we know that God has given us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. And as we read in Deuteronomy 31.6, we're to be strong and courageous. 
Don't be in fear, do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And if we believe that, then we need to live like that. Well, this frenzied crowd was completely out of control. They shouted Alexander down for two hours. But in the providence of God, the riot was about to come to an end. In verses 35 and uh, 41, we see the, the calming that was brought upon this crowd. Look at verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, after two hours of total chaos in the theater, the crowd was quieted and order was restored. God in his providence used the town clerk to prevent this ordeal from, be, from turning into a more violent riot. The town clerk wasn't just anybody. We don't picture him as a little guy with glasses, kind of a nerdy guy who worked on the books in the back room. Now, the town clerk was the city's chief administrative officer. He was a very powerful man. He was the equivalent of the mayor of a modern city, and he was the liaison to the Roman provincial government of Asia, which had its seat in Ephesus. He was also the person who would be held responsible for this riot. And he knew that the Roman government took a very dim view of this kind of thing. Because if local authorities couldn't control the citizenry, then some of the city's self-governing privileges and civic freedoms enjoyed under the empire's authority would be jeopardized and perhaps even taken away. And a riot like this was just inviting the Roman government to come in and to remove all of the appointed officials from office and put the city under martial law. And the town clerk knew this. He knew it very well. And so what the town clerk did, he, he primarily did for personal and political reasons. Because by saving Paul and his friends and, and quieting this mob, he was saving his own skin. And the town clerk would have been easily recognizable because of his official robe. And so when the crowd recognized him, they understood the power that this man had, and so they, they quieted down and they allowed him to speak. And Luke tells us what he said. And this man made four points. The first and the rest of verse 35 and 36. Notice, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Again, it was probably a meteorite and tradition said it, it, it came down from Jupiter. Verse 36, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought, he said, to be quiet. And do nothing rash. And so his first point was that everyone knew that Ephesus was the guardian of the temple of Artemis. And since this was a known fact and no one could deny it, there was no danger and they just needed to be quiet and, and do nothing rash. And then he said, verse 37, For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. And so his second point, was that Paul's friends, whom they had dragged into the theater, were innocent. They were not guilty of profaning or blaspheming Artemis. Thirdly, he said in verses 38 and 39, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. And so his third point was that if Demetrius and the silversmiths guild 
had a legitimate case against these men, and they could go to court and handle it in the proper legal way. And then fourthly, he said in verse 40, For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And so his fourth point was that the citizens of Ephesus were in danger of being charged with civil disorder because of this riot. And if they were charged, they would would not be able to justify their actions or their conduct. And then after making his four points, we read in verse 41, And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The town clerk had nothing more in mind than the things which would normally concern a politician. Maintaining the status quo. He really didn't care about the issues. He didn't want to examine them. He wanted only to keep everything quiet and orderly in order to keep the Romans off of his back. And that is the way that men think. But in that, God was behind the scenes, overruling the wildness of this mob, calming the emotions which were raging in the hearts of so many people, creating this uncontrollable situation. And the Lord used this pagan city clerk to calm the mob and to end the immediate threat to Paul and the other Christians. I mean, God had preserved his work and his people once again. And you know, in doing that, God can use anything, right? God can use anything. God works in mysterious ways, and he can use the most unlikely people to serve his purpose and to further his cause and to protect his apostles and his saints. So the riot was over. Those in charge said the Christians had done nothing wrong. The Christians were vindicated. Paul's friends were released. Paul was not attacked, and he was eventually able to leave Ephesus without any trouble. And why is that? Well, because God was in complete control of the situations all the situation all the time. And God, the fact is, God would have been in control even if Paul and his friends had been killed. And of course, we know that down through church history, Christians have not always been vindicated, have they? Many Christians died for their faith and continue to die today. And they died because they were willing to stand for the faith. They died because they believed what was going to happen to them in the life to come was far more important than anything that could happen to them here. And they were willing to pay any price. They were willing to stand. They were willing to be brave and courageous. Though they may have been you know, shaking in their boots. They knew that by the grace of God, they would be able to stand and be courageous, even if it meant death. That's how dear to them Christ was, the truth was. They wouldn't compromise, even if it cost them their lives. Many have died, but in this instance, it was God's will to deliver Paul and his friends. And so Demetrius was the man Satan used to stir up the opposition in Ephesus. And you wonder, whatever happened to him? And the fact is, we don't know. We absolutely don't know. But this is interesting. John, in his third epistle, which was written in Ephesus, 
mentions a Demetrius. John said in 3 John verse 12, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I mean, it's not beyond possibility that after that day of defeat in the theater at Ephesus, Paul made contact with Demetrius and shared the gospel with him, and he trusted Christ and and, and was saved. Now, obviously, we don't know that. I mean, that's pure conjecture. But it's entirely possible. And we'll find out when we get to heaven, won't we? You know, Ephesus was a city that was gripped by the occult and pagan idol worship, but as the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 130, the enfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And through Paul's faithful preaching of God's word and the message of the gospel, The light of God that shines through the pages of Scripture burst into the darkness of Ephesus and and many people were saved. They were born again. Darkness gave way to the light and the transformed lives of the believers had a huge impact on the city and its culture for Christ. As one man said, these early disciples were completely fearless, outrageously happy, and constantly in trouble. And you know, the account in these verses, the account that we've looked at this morning, it makes me ask myself, and I would encourage you to ask yourself the same thing, but it makes me ask myself, am I doing anything significant enough on behalf of God's kingdom to stir up the enemy's opposition? Now look, I realize that God sometimes grants the church times of peace. I also realize that the freedom of religion in our country assures us a certain amount of protection from persecution. But I also think that we should consider the words of G. Campbell Morgan who said this, The church persecuted has always been the church pure, and therefore the church powerful. The church patronized has always been the church in peril, and very often the church paralyzed. And I think much of the church in this country today appears to be paralyzed. Because much of the church has compromised the word of God. I'm astounded as I look around and see churches and pastors, some well-known, very well-known celebrities, accepting things like critical race theory, intersectionality as tools, gospel tools. They've brought in the social justice movement. Don't let the name fool you. It's It's not about justice at all. It's about hatred and bigotry and racism. It is another gospel. It's another gospel that has infiltrated the church. And men and churches that that heretofore have been, appeared to be solid, have, have bought it hook, line, and sinker. 
and many of the men who have the, the pulpits and the, 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 the big pulpits, the stage, who are the voices, they're not sounding the warning. So the church in this country is very often the church paralyzed, the church powerless. I mean, are we making a powerful impact on our culture? Would to God. Would to God that unbelievers would see the effects of the gospel in our lives, in our lifestyles, and be convicted of their sins their sinful lifestyle. Would to God that this would have such an impact upon the culture in which we live and as it did in Ephesus so that it caused no small disturbance in the city of Reading and, and the state of California and the United States of America. I mean, whenever the gospel is boldly and faithfully proclaimed, and, and men are standing up for the truth. People are saved. Their lives are going to be transformed. And as a result, their lifestyles are going to change. And again, if that happens to enough people, it begins to have an impact upon the society in which they live. And in that way, a change in society will occur. I mean, history bears that out. It's happened many times. But in saying all of that, changing society is not our primary mission. Our primary mission is living as changed people, living as Christians, living as gospel people in a dark and dying world. We are to live as changed people in society. That's our primary mission. Bringing glory to God through our life. That is our goal. And when enough people begin to do that, then it will have an impact upon society. And as we live our lives for Christ, we may not bring about the changes that we desire. But as men and women change by the transforming power of the gospel, we can live as channels of God's mercy and grace to people all around us in this dark and dying world. And listen, things are not going to get better unless God in His mercy brings a massive revival. And we have no promise that He will. We pray for it. But unless He does, things are not going to get better. The country that we used to live in no longer exists. Things are going to continue to change and they're going to change rapidly. Not for the good, but for the worst. And so what a great opportunity we have to be light and salt. We are here for such a time as this. It's no accident we're living at this time. We may not see the changes we desire, but we can certainly be channels for God's, for God's glorious gospel, the gospel of grace to the people who are dying all around us and on their way to hell. Well, they may not accept us. They may not like us for what we are. That's all right. If we're truly living for Christ, they're not going to be able to make legitimate accusations against the way we live. That's what we're to be doing. Living for Christ. 
Not just on Sundays. Every day, all the day. On our job, where we shop, where we recreate. Where we work, at our business. We're to be living for Christ. Seeking to bring glory to God in the way that we live. And we know with utter certainty that when Christ returns, he's going to change everything, isn't he? He's going to make all things right. And I look forward to that day. But in the interim, we're called to live for him. To live for him who died for us. Let me ask you, are you living for him? If unbelievers you work with or recreate with look at your life, your activities, the way you spend your money, would they think, boy, this person is really different from me. There's something different about this person. He won't do the things we do on Sunday because he makes it a priority to be in church. He doesn't talk the way we do. He doesn't listen to those kind of jokes or tell them. He loves his wife as Christ loved the church. He, he teaches his children. He brings them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. He's teaching his children the importance of God and the things of God and the church of God. He's leading his children and his wife. He's showing them what a masculine, godly man looks like and leading from the front, not from the rear. Are we living that way? Unbelievers see a difference in our lives? If not, that's a problem. That's what we're supposed to be doing, loved ones. Bringing glory to God in our lives. Living for Christ, sharing Christ, looking for the great and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, knowing that when He comes, He's going to change everything and make it all right. But until then, Until then, may we be faithful servants of God. Faithful. That's the whole thing, right? To be found faithful. Moreover, it is required of a steward that one be found, what? Faithful. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. So until Christ returns or he takes us home, may we be faithful servants. May God help us to do that in this day and age and in this place. May the Lord work these things in our hearts by his grace and for his glory. Let's stand and pray. behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. 
you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. Pro-